there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own Organic Oasis um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay, what Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for Mother Earth. Okay, we're recording. Uh, welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast, podcast today. I am just more than excited to introduce my guest because he's coming back to us. He was one of my favorite guests. I still want to write a children's book about him someday because he just has the most amazing biography and life story. And just um, he's written this great new book called Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. And he co-wrote it with Liz Carlisle, who has also been a guest. And um, so here to talk to us today is Bob Quinn from Big Sandy, Montana. So welcome back, Bob. Thank you very much, Jackie. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so excited. I just like, you sent me a copy of your book, which was so nice. And like, I got it. It was so funny because you were worried. We changed the interview date because you were afraid I wouldn't have time to read it. And then I almost finished it that morning because it was just and I got it like the day before like I read it in oh. under 48 hours it's so good and just such a great story and and so many just I don't know so many cool things that I love to talk about on my show like green jobs and um or rural jobs and agriculture and and helping um you know new farmers get started like a lot just so much passion the relationships you build with like all these amazing people and just how you talk about like just like it's it's very much a, a theory of abundance that we can have a world where you know you talk about two family farms being supported together and it's not just all, all about like who's going to have the biggest toys like how can we have a a local sustainable model and just i don't know so many great things so uh, but let's hear what you have to say because my listeners are always like jackie don't talk so much <laughs> <laughs> thank you jackie that's quite a generous assessment um it was a lot of fun to write. Liz is a great uh, partner to have in uh, writing this book, and and I think she made made the story easy to read and um, uh, very um, f free flowing from one topic to another. I was thrilled about that, and uh, there are so many things to discuss. Actually, we really <clears throat> it was a challenge to uh, meet the um, limitations that they're placed on us for keeping the book in a you know in a, in a, without being a gone with the wind version. Um, with so many, so many topics, we try to hit the highlights and um, cover some of the subjects that I'm passionate about, like the high cost of cheap food and the decline of rural America and, and disappearing disappearance of our farms, all because we are 
um, have been really co not coerced, but encouraged to look at our farms like factories and to move into an industrial um, agricultural system and an industrial food system. Well, I love all those topics too. And the way that you have put them together, I think like your scientific background and just um, the people that like, you're so willing to talk to people. I feel like I just don't, I don't know. I love to read biographies. I wish you would have made it as long as the Gone with the Wind version. But uh, like I said, I couldn't put it down and was, you know, could have kept reading. And I've read a lot of books this year. I just happen to have had a period of time where, like, I go to the library and pick up, like, six books almost every week. Like, she knows wow. me. And I don't rarely go to town if the library is closed on those days. Like, yeah, I've read a lot of books. But this one just was right at my heart. And so... uh why don't you tell listeners, if they didn't hear our first interview, just a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I'm, um, I, I was raised on a Wheaton cattle ranch in north central Montana, not too far from Big Sandy, uh, which is about, well, we're about 12 and a half miles out of town. And Big Sandy is between Haver and um, Great Falls, Montana, and, and not too far south of the Canadian border where the Alberta and Saskatchewan meet. And um, my grandfather started this farm in 1920. <clears throat> Excuse me. My father was raised on this farm, and I after him, and now I raised my children here. So it's um, been the family three generations, and I don't see any of my uh, children coming back, at least at this point. And I've got about 18 grandkids, and maybe one of them will be interested. So I leased out the farm to a couple of the, my employees that have been here for six years. I trained in every aspect I knew of organic agriculture and they're continuing the organic tradition and having a great time. I, you know, I had my turn in farming and uh, it was fantastic. And now I think it's the time for the next generation to have a turn and they're um, uh, continuing where I left off. So that's a lot of fun for me. We've gone from 4,000 acres down to, at least I have from 4,000 to four acres. And on that four acres, I continue some of my experiments, which I really enjoyed doing throughout my farming life. And um, also, I'm trying to grow all my own food. Um, we do a lot of experiments with dryland vegetables. So I grow um, even melons, but dryland storage vegetables and non-storage like tomatoes and whatnot out in the, in the field with no irrigation. And it's a lot of fun and a great challenge. Well, that was a total mouthful there. Uh, we're kind of like that here, too. My husband's dad... Well, I guess it was more only second, but then my stepdaughters live on the property. So like he grew up on a 1200 acre cattle ranch and then we have the last 20 acres. And then my one stepdaughter lives on the other end of the property and they will eventually inherit. So, but we're not big farmers like you are. My husband has like a mini farm, which is like, I don't know, between a quarter and a third of an acre. And his goal is to grow a lot of our food. And I'm very interested in yours because we have really limited water at my house. So I'm really interested in your dry land vegetables and how, um, like, you're just such a scientist. Like, you talk about, like, you picked, like, 40 varieties of potatoes and then would narrow it down to five. And I always hear my husband saying things like that. He'll always be like, these potatoes are good for mashing and these potatoes are better for baker potatoes. And you talk about a lot of that in your story. Yes. Yes, that's true. Um, you know, if we really look at... Uh uh food as um is really a health component um and they have different um um criteria that really add to that 
there's all kinds of things that we can learn with different different types of food. And what we have done in the recent years is just try to look at only the, the cost of food and making it cheap and, uh, and making it high yielding in order to have it cheap. But um, there's a really high cost of this cheap food and it starts with the farmers who aren't paid enough to most of the time stay in business and, and make a decent living. And um, they're, they're the cheapness that they are paid for the, what they produce and is passed on to the consumer in an artificially um, uh, cheap um, food at the checkout counter. But that's only the first parts of it. But um, I'm really interested in trying to um, teach people that food should be your health or your, your um, medicine and medicine should be your food. And if we really follow that a little bit more, we could really reduce the cost of our medicine and our health care because it has skyrocketed while uh, food has uh, decreased in price. In fact, it, since 1941, the cost of food in the average budget has decreased 61%, while the cost of health care, um, so we didn't get to spend all that money, extra money we saved on new boats and bigger houses or fun trips. We got to spend it on health care. Health care in the same period of time has increased 61%. That's quite an astounding statistic to think about. And they're really closely related because what we've done to make food cheap in many cases has made it less nutritious and less healthy for us. And that's why your dryland vegetables are um, something that new farmers might be interested in because is it something about like they're not getting like watered down so they get more nutrient value? Well, one thing you find, I, I've compared um, like tomatoes, raising them in my garden and in my, in my field with no irrigation side by side and, it, and the flavor intensity in the dry land is, is really noticeable. And what makes nice flavors are um, secondary plant metabolites like um, polyphenols. And polyphenols are very strong antioxidants and contribute to um, uh, reducing inflammation. And so just by uh, choosing vegetables or foods for their aromas and flavors, you're actually um, choosing higher nutrition in most all cases. And so that's one criteria that you can use and one thing that we've noticed in, in dry land and also we notice with organic compared to non-organic is there certainly we have uh, people often comment on the intensity of the flavors and and, what, and that's what we're seeing and that really is connected with health. Well, and also there's no way they could grow dry land vegetables non-organically, could they? Well, I suppose you could. You just if you used a um, uh, high input mentality um, and just uh, and, and use lots of chemicals. But um, the value of non-organic vegetables certainly isn't as high as organic vegetables. People are willing to pay more, and they're higher. They're of higher value, so they're actually getting more for their money. Um, what we've been able to do is give those vegetables um, about three times more space <clears throat> than what you'd normally do in irrigated fields or or um, in, in areas where it rains, or the, like in the Midwest where they don't even water their lawns. Um, when you have that kind of rain, the, the density of, of uh, that works for vegetable growing is much different than dry land. So if we give each plant about three times more space then normally they receive and under good water conditions they're able to find enough water to produce and they and grow properly and what we've seen is each plant will produce just about as much as a uh, irrigated or a rained on plant but we only have as one third as many uh, per acre 
uh, well, we have lots of acres, so that's not a problem. And it's also really reducing the cost of our of our farming, except for the, the labor to control weeds. But the labor or the uh, cost of inputs like water for irrigation is just nil. Uh, nil. Uh, well, I think that's but that's super important because having water, especially water that you can irrigate vegetables with, you know, clean water and things like that is becoming scarce. And there's so many places in our country that are scarce. Like I just, I'm really frustrated with California. Like I feel like all those fires last summer, like I don't know if the smoke made it over to big Sandy, but for almost the whole month of August last summer, it was just really hard to even go outside at my house. And I know it's nothing compared to where the people in California were, but I just feel like if they were practicing more of these things that you're talking about, maybe they wouldn't have had such big fires. Well, and some of that's due to climate change, too. We are seeing that um, on our own farm. You know, farmers don't really have the luxury to debate climate change. We have to respond to it. And what we see generally, because it's the, there's more extremes, of course, but generally what we're seeing is the, the rains are ending sooner and the heat is coming sooner in the summertime. So our spring crops are becoming of higher and higher risk. And in fact, one of the experiments we're doing on our farm is planting traditional spring crops in the fall so that we can, if we can get them through the winter, they can um, uh, benefit from winter snows and early, early spring rains and be uh, maturing before the, the heat gets um, so intense or the water, the rainwaters quit. So they are um, really reduced in their yield like we're seeing with our spring crops. Yeah, and, like, this year, I don't know, it just seems so crazy. Like, we still have, like, I don't know, two, three, four feet of snow in our yard. Yeah, it's so melting quickly, but, like, two weeks ago, we were below zero at the beginning of March, and I don't know. Yeah, so it's not it's not really correct to just refer to this climate change as global warming, uh, per se, but it's we, we are seeing, although, you know, we see the glaciers melting in Glacier Park, and... and um, also in the ice cap, but we're, what we're seeing more of is just extremes. And, and what you mentioned, we're seeing right at our farm too. We, we went, a few years ago, we went from extreme um, high amount of rain, which we normally would have in the, in the top of the rain cycles that we used to have that used ran, say, every 11 years or so, to the very next year was an extreme drought. And that would normally be in, at the bottom of the cycle that would be five or six years off. And yet that was a case where the one followed the other just back to back. That's that's very unusual and very extreme. Yeah, and you are definitely the data man to know all that kind of thing. So what do you want to tell us about your book? Well, <laughs> where do you want to start? I, 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 I've seen a lot of people write books, and it's, it's sort of a ticket to really tell their story. Um, and I thought, well, if that's required for... Um, opportunity to tell your story that I'll make the effort to write a book. And even though I'd never done it before, I, I spent about five years trying to um, put something together that would be the story of not only our, our, our Kamut story, our ancient wheat story, but also what I've learned in organic agriculture and um, uh, the importance of food as medicine and lots of these different things that I've learned along the way. And I really didn't have any success of get, finding a publisher who wanted to publish it. And finally, when I found um, or bumped into Liz Carlisle, who was who's really from Montana and was here um, as a part of an organic um, field day 
a couple of years ago. She had written at Lentil Underground, and many of the people she wrote about were at that field day, and they were having a little bit of a reunion. And I asked her if she'd be interested in, in uh, partnering with me and writing a book, and she agreed, and, and off we went. So it's a little bit of a biographical um, story, but the bigger story is what we've done to our food system um, and, and really the high cost of cheap food, high cost of farmers, high cost of they go out of business, high cost of communities that are no longer um, being supported by those farmers who went out of business, find the high cost, then next to the high cost to our planet in terms of um, global uh, climate change and also pollutions of agricultural chemicals that don't stay where you put them and are certainly applied overabundantly. And then finally, the high cost to our health. <clears throat> and that's the kind of, those are the really the main messages. And my my biographical story is really just a vehicle to to tell that bigger story. Okay. Well, my listeners are always interested in learning like things that they can do to be more productive farmers. And like I'm sure some of them will be interested in like how could they become a camu wheat farmer or I know one thing I'm super interested in is the hemp project how that's coming along. <laughs> well, for us, it's a little bit slow. We started out with seven acres two years ago. It took us two years to sell the the crop that we grew on that seven acres. So we didn't plant any last year because we still had crop from the year before. <clears throat> I think it's a it has some great opportunities and great future. But I always caution my friends: don't um, be sure you have a market before you start planting stuff, so you know that you're going to be able to to sell it. And um, that's um, I think it's yeah, really that's important. interesting because like so there's this huge CBD oil processing plant in Eureka and they actually like I went and talked to him a couple of times at the beginning of this year and he was saying that they had to shut down for almost six weeks because they couldn't get any hemp and they actually started growing it over in Shelby they were getting it from Canada uh-huh well, uh, C well cbd oil of course is a but, completely different uh, product than what we were growing we were just growing the industrial hemp for the seed and mm -hmm. in order to produce cbd oil you have to harvest the plant green and then you extract the cbd oil with um alcohol and so it's a completely different process than waiting for the seeds to mature and then harvesting the plant uh so that you harvest the, the mature plant for seeds and then we're crushing those seeds for oil uh, so it's a much it's a different type of oil and a different process completely. If you're interested in growing for that market, then you have to be prepared to um, uh, cut and bale your your hemp crop while it's still green and quite immature, just as it begins to flower. And so you you have to know again what what your market is and what you're what you're growing for it. We we distributed we were involved in distributing um, industrial hemp seed this spring and we distributed out several uh, seed for several um, hundreds and maybe even a couple thousand acres. But yet a lot of folks um, I don't know that they all were um, sure on where they were going to sell their products. So that's that's what you have to be careful of. And I think that's a huge part of your story. Like I was saying before, the connections you made. Like, I love that picture of you and your parents back when you were, you know, at that first agricultural show. Um, and just all the different people you meet and, and how you've gone out there and, and, and made a profitable market for, like, you started out with your Kamut and, and then have just gone on from there. <laughs> Well, I like to tell people, you know, you mentioned earlier about 
um, not everybody gets to be a farmer, but I like to remind uh, folks that actually, if you if you're eating, you are a farmer. You're actually a co-producer, as Carlo Petrini used to say in um, from the slow food movement uh, in Italy. He said that um, if you are a, not a farmer but eat, you are a co-producer because what you eat has a has a drives what I plant, and um, uh, that's that's a connection that is not often thought about, but very, very important. So the, eat, so the eaters of this country really are in the driver's seat. What they buy at the grocery store, what they order on the menu at the restaurants, what they eat at home um, really drives what the farmers are planting. So they, of course, they're the vast majority. The farmers are now only about 1% in this country. So we're looking at the 99% to, if they want to uh, regenerative organic agriculture and renewable systems that don't um, add to the pollution of the earth and and and, and uh, grow food that's actually more nutritious, then all they have to do is buy more organic food. And they can just do it at, at one additional product at a time every time they go shopping. Just buy one more item of organic food than you did the last time. And that will begin to make an enormous difference. But isn't that a little bit of like what you're talking about? It's like, that's pretty, that can be spendy. I can't afford to buy organic food like 90% of the time. So I'm lucky that Mike grows for me a lot of organic food, but. Well, I didn't say 90%. I said one more item. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wherever you're at, wherever you're at in your shopping. If you're at zero, just buy one item. Um, if you're at um, 20%, just buy one more item. If you're over 80% just by one more. Those intra, uh, incremental differences don't really make a big difference in your bottom line. Also, if you're in a reduced budget, then <clears throat> try to buy things that are uh, more uh, closer, to, less processed and therefore less expensive. So the Kamut um, brand grain is, is a very expensive grain. Um, it costs a couple of dollars, maybe a pound in the store. But if you were to buy that and take it home and crack it and make hot cereal, you can feed a family of four for less than 50 cents. So it's not a big cost. Um, and if you look at uh, the, the drivers, if we start increasing the amount of organic available, certainly um, the transportation, the handling costs will start to come down a little bit as, as more people are involved in it and, and it becomes less of a specialty item. How about, do you want to talk about like your fruit trees and things that you're growing at your house and your garden that you said you turned four acres into growing your garden? <laughs> well, sure. I uh, also like to experiment with what else we can do in the prairies of northern Montana besides wheat and barley. And uh, one thing I've been experimenting with about 10 years are, are fruit trees. We have uh, 21 different varieties of apples. We have about um, six or eight different varieties of pears and plums and also sour cherries. We can't grow sweet cherries here, but we can grow sour cherries. And I have about um, 20 different um, types of bushes, berry bushes, all the way from sea buckthorn um, from Siberia to uh, choke cherries and buffalo berries and currants and cyrus berries that are native right here in our own um, coolies uh, on our farm. <clears throat> so we've tried to... Um, see what berries would grow best and then find uses for them. We grow grapes, uh, which some varieties of grapes grow very well here. My daughter's making red wine vinegar, so she's making vinegar out of the grapes and out of the sour cherries, which is just fantastic. I don't, every, every time I went to, to uh, Italy, I used to bring home some balsamic vinegar because it 
was so fantastic. And I don't do that anymore. I, I, I use my daughter's uh, uh, sour cherry and grape vinegars. And they're, they're not the same as balsamic, but they're just as flavorful and um, unique in taste. And so that's the sort of thing we're experimenting with to see what can actually be done. I'm taking uh, my sour cherry juice and mixing it with apple juice, which makes a wonderful new tangy breakfast drink that uh, could be uh, substituted for orange juice or other juices that people might be drinking in Montana that coming coming for thousands of miles away. We can produce something that's just nutritious, if not more so, right here at home. And that's what we're trying to show. That sounds awesome. Cherry with apple. Uh, So how about like some secrets for like growing fruit trees or pruning fruit trees or do you do any of that kind of thing or growing grapes or well uh, they just need a lot of care <laughs> so you can't they don't grow by themselves so you do have to prune them properly uh, the one thing I learned that was a big surprise to me was that the advantage of uh, growing standard sized trees and we're really on the edge uh, for our climate we're in zone three and a lot of trees that are there are, there are a couple hundred apple trees, for example, available that are zone three. And I've tried about, oh man, about 50 of those. So almost a quarter of them. And some of them didn't work so well. Some of them didn't taste so good. Some of them had other problems. They didn't fruit very well or whatever. And But what I found with the, and it was really tied to the extremes they have in weather, that when I first started, I was buying semi-dwarf trees. And I later found out that when you put uh, a normal standard apple tree or maybe other kinds too, but that's what I'm focusing on, on a semi-dwarf rootstock. It's the rootstock that makes them dwarf or semi-dwarf or or standard um, that really is putting stress on that tree so it's not able to grow like normal. And that stress has a net effect of reducing the um, uh, climate zone and its tolerates by about half a climate zone. So I lost about half of my semi-dwarf trees, and now I've been um, replacing them only with standard trees. So that was one kind of one secret I didn't um, I, I, I didn't know before that I, that I know now and I'm glad to share. That's great. Gold, some great golden seeds there for listeners. That's kind of what I talk like, call like golden nuggets or value bombs or things other people say on other podcasts. How about like, remember that story that you told in the book about the grasshoppers and like like, I love the way you're always testing things. So you have like this one field of wheat and like this huge grasshopper infestation came in and you like treated them two different ways on the organic one. How did it go? Like somehow that survived, but the one where you had like applied some kind of like herbicide or pesticide or something like it, it did its job, but then the grasshoppers came back through and you couldn't spray or something. I can't, do you? <laughs> All right. Well, that story occurred in 1988. So that was the actually my um, second season of um, organic experiments. So I was so in, I was so excited about the success I had the first year that I stopped using or uh, chemicals on about half my farm. So almost half of my <clears throat> farm was going into organic transition, and 88 was a severe drought year. And with drought, we often get uh, hordes of grasshoppers that come in, and they can eat everything. And they, they, that's what they were doing that year. They even ate the bark off the lilacs. It was incredible infestation. And um, as they were heading toward our fields or starting to show up, um, our organic field 
was sprayed. I had a spray plane come and, and treat it with malathion, which is a very um, uh, strong anti or, um, insecticide. In fact, you're caution not even to enter the field for 24 hours after it's sprayed because it's it's deadly to people too and um, it's a poison and it did kill all the grasses hoppers it killed everything else in the field um but the grasshoppers within uh, new grasshoppers i should say within about five or seven days returned and and there were more than ever and they almost destroyed what was left and by that time i couldn't afford to spray it again um so i didn't and at the harvest time, I had more grasshoppers in the combine tank than, than grain. Meanwhile, with my organic field that was um, right across the creek bottom from the, 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 um, the uh, non-organic one, I treated that field with um, a protozoa, with, um, which is a halfway between a, a bacteria and a, and a virus in size about, you might think of it that way. And um, that is a, was placed on wheat bran and you spread the wheat bran just in a strip um, on the outside or just on the very edges of your fields. And the grasshoppers, as they start to move into your fields, will eat that uh, first and then they get sick. And once they're sick, they, their friends all come and eat them. And so that's how the disease spreads from grasshopper to grasshopper. And although they destroyed about 20 or 30 feet of the edge of the field before they died, um, at harvest time, they, they hadn't affected the crop hardly at all, and there was very, very few grasshoppers in the combine tank, which is now full of grain. So that was the last time I used chemicals on my farm. I was a complete convert by then and very excited with what I saw. I used the best of what chemistry had to offer for chemical industrial agriculture, and it failed, um, and it failed dramatically. And that was, the, that was the final nail in the coffin as far as how I viewed chemical agriculture and how I convert it to organic. And not only did it fail, but like, isn't part of the reason it was just super expensive, right? To buy that pesticide. Well, it's, yeah, they're not cheap. And if they don't work, then they're really expensive. Then you're just pouring up. You're just giving the chemical companies money for, for uh, no results. And, um, and the same is starting to happen with herbicides now with glyphosate, uh, being used so extensively that we have super weeds that are resistant to it. The more and more you you spend on it, the, the less are the final results. So it's a it's a it's an artificial system. Mostly, I'm talking about now industrial chemical agriculture is an artificial system, mostly propped up with government subsidies. Most of those uh, go into the pockets of not the farmers because they're paying using most of that money that they get from the government to pay their chemical bill. So it's a transfer of funds from the federal treasury into the pockets of the um, chemical industry, industrial complex, and the international one, which is bigger and bigger. And that's where the money is going. And the farmers are not the uh, end, end recipient of the great advantage from this system. You know, speaking of uh, big corporations, like one of the stories I remember reading um, was like, you were trying to connect with this scientist to find out, like, what's the weed threshold? And they didn't want to answer you, right? Well, they, they, right. I was, uh, Do you want to explain what a weed threshold is maybe really quick? Well, what I was trying to figure out, I could tell sometimes when we were uh, growing winter wheat, the wheat pressure, that means the wheat population in the winter would be so low um, I would wonder, well, where is the um, 
threshold that where you're, if you're spraying a herbicide, we know that you spray a herbicide on any crop, it sets that crop back. You're going to reduce the yield just a little bit by the application of that herbicide because it affects the, the non-targeted plants also to a certain certain degree. Um, and so my question was to my chemical representative who was dealing with one of the largest uh, chemical companies in the country, in the world, I should say. I said, could you tell me how many weeds per square foot that I should um, be worried about causing an economic uh, impact on my crop before I would choose to spray a herbicide on? I think that would be a very valuable piece of information. And he said, well, I'll get back to you on that. But he never did, of course. And um, I, I always was curious of, of where the balance was. And this is before I was organic. But after I, I started experimenting with organic um, systems, I just uh, I didn't care anymore about the use of uh, chemical herbicides because I felt like I found a much better system to replace it with. All right. Well, uh, anything else that I've missed that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing that I've been thinking about a lot since I attended the last um, uh, expo, the Organic Expo in, in California, ex, uh, Natural Products Expo West. It's the biggest um, organic uh, food show in America, not the world, but at least in America. And <clears throat> we were at a seminar where uh, folks were talking about the goals of organic production. Um, you know, we're at 5% right now. They said, well, gosh, we should be thinking of 10 or 15%. And I finally couldn't stand it anymore. And I got up and I said, you know, I think we should be talking about 100%. And if you think about putting it in increments, the last 30 years of uh, my my generation has taken organic production and, and organic uh, availability of food in the grocery store from near zero to about 5%. And it's growing at a, great, a rate greater than 10% right now. So if we look at what our generation has done of opening the door and establish at least a 5% threshold where organic can be found almost in any grocery store now um, – if we look at the next 30 years, if we're growing at 10% a year and starting at 5 in 30 years we're going to reach 100%. And so my challenge is to the next generation is to walk through that door we've opened and finish the job. And it, it's not so uh, – it's half done. And uh, so in two generations it can be finished. So you could say all together in 100 years, say from the early 50s, 1950s, to the early 2050s in 100 years – we could say that the great American experiment with chemical agriculture is finished. Wow, you're a big dreamer, Bob, but being a big dreamer like that has made you the success that you are and, and changed a lot of the way we see agriculture because of great people like you. Like you started one of the very first organic associations, right? Like you wanted an organic standard for Montana. Like wasn't that part of it? Like to bring other farmers on board and... There were a lot of reasons, right? Well, yes, but it wasn't just me. I had lots of good help, and there were there were people already uh, like Dave Oyen, uh, who had been farming organically many years before I got started, and and and, and many others, uh, Jim Barngrover, who had been involved with organic activities, um, and 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 those uh, few friends that I soon found with Arrow was kind of the the hotbed of um, this kind of thinking. In those days, it still is, but it's certainly grown beyond the small group we had then. Those um, like-minded folks really 
allowed us to come together and do things as a community and a, and a, a group that far exceeded our numbers as far as influence goes. And I, I take my hat off to those early pioneers and helpers who really um, dared to go where people hadn't gone before. And I, I was an early ado adopter and early follower of those great pioneers we had in this country, or in this state and also in the whole country. Well, that's how I found out about you and met Liz and just that's where it all started for me was going to an era workshop with um, after I started my podcast. I can't even remember how it started, but like Robin Kelson, I think, introduced me. She took me to the Aero conference. Uh, we oh, went um, two years ago, 2016, 2000, I think 2016. And uh, but I also think it's well, I don't know, because like big farmers like you like implemented a lot of it and went out there and found customer well i know dave's really big dave warren on finding customers too and things like that well before we get to the root of things we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links so deer busters is located in Waynes waynesboro pennsylvania but we work with many different homeowners, gardeners, pet owners to protect their landscapes from deer damage. And we offer do-it-yourself deer fencing in plastic and metal fence options. So we have a, a whole lot of different fence options for every unique gardener. Deerbusters is uh, an online company. We're on deerbusters.com. And uh, if you're local to Maryland or Pennsylvania, you can come by and check us out. But we do not have physical locations across the country. So DeerBusters.com is the way to go. We also have an active social media platform, Facebook and Twitter. And we are ready to help answer any questions and help our growers protect their landscapes from wildlife damage. We're here to help uh growers all across the country with our fencing. Announce my first sponsor, Robin Kelson from the Good Seed Company. Welcome, Robin. Yay! Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and very happy to be your sponsor. We have a large variety of locally adapted, open-pollinated, non-GMO vegetable, flower, and herb seeds, both for the kitchen table and the medicine cabinet. And we hope you'll enjoy in visiting our website, goodseedco.net or Goodseed Montana, and seeing the resources that we offer for becoming a better gardener, a better seed saver, and a member of building resiliency around food in your community. And now let's get to the root of things. How about I'll just ask you, like, my, the end of my podcast, I asked, like, it's kind of like a lightning round. We call it getting to the root of things. Like, and we'll talk about, like, your garden specifically. Like, do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Have a what? Something a you, yeah, a least favorite, like something you got to force yourself to get out there and do? Oh, hmm. No, my garden is my, um, what I do instead of going to coffee for a lot of guys or a lot of people, that's my recreation. That's my, um, uh, how I relax. That's my, where I med meditate and think about things and <laughs> enjoy. I just have great joy from growing my, my own food. So I, um, I've always loved growing plants. That's been my passion. So gardening for me is just, uh, an outlet for that passion. And so it's really been great fun. I, um, I make my own compost and I put a little um, rotted um, aged uh, manure from the 
from the corrals here on it with the compost every year. And um, I use drip irrigation, so I'm not overwatering or you know, wasting much water because um, our well water is terrible. Uh, it has a lot of sodium in it, so I have to rely on service water, and sometimes that is in limited supply. So I'm trying to figure out every angle I can to increase productivity and, and, and um, save on resources. So what's something that grew well there last year? Oh, this last year, my biggest um, uh, joy this last year were my watermelons. I had 25 to 30 pound watermelons and they were delicious and they were really, really uh, fun to grow and watch, but even more fun to eat. And we had so many at the end that I, I juiced. I had one watermelon type that I'd gotten from friends of mine in um, Israel. And they said these are watermelons that they used to eat, but now they just grow them for seeds because people um, don't want seeds in their watermelon anymore. And they, they harvest the seeds and they make um, snacks like we eat sunflower seeds here, or pumpkin seeds. They eat watermelon seeds. But I've been growing those, and the seeds are a tasty treat, but I don't throw away anything and try to um, – if I can't eat all the watermelon, I'm, I'm juicing it and saving the juice, and we enjoy that all winter. So that was probably my most um, exciting um, trial this last year. I'm trying now, this year I'm going to experiment with hot caps to see if I can extend the season a little bit because we probably lost um, a third to nearly half of our watermelons and, and uh, other melons to uh, frost. Not that the frost is really early, but... Um, these are longer season plants, and if I can figure out how to um, get them to grow, uh, get an earlier start, then they'll have a longer season. And I found that the transplants really, um, for dry land at least, they get off to a quicker start, but the uh, direct seeded seeds uh, that, that produce the plants really catch up, and at the end they do as well or better than the transplants. So I think that even if you handling it the best you can, there's always a little bit of transplant shock. And with dry land, it's really important that the roots are healthy and able to be really spreading out looking for water. That's that's the most critical limiting thing that we have for dry land production. I get that way with my sunflowers, I think, sometimes. Like, uh, I'll put some in and then... The ones I put in later, almost like I just feel like they all kind of flower the first week in August, yeah. and no matter what, like it doesn't matter if I put them in in April or if I put them in in June, they all kind of like the ones in April are more likely to grow a little taller. I do find if I want them to go to seed, I have to get them in by like April to get them to go to seed by the end of. And even last year, the ones I put in the earliest still didn't go to seed. I don't know why. Huh. But, um, yeah, I definitely find things like that, that sometimes transplanting the things that you put in the ground directly uh, end up taking off better. Yep, yep, I think that's that's true. And um, um, something like tomatoes, we, we normally would transplant, and it, I don't see it. Uh, they, they um, I, although I've had tomatoes go to volunteer in my garden, and they've also yeah. like, seem to grow faster. There is a, there's always a shock for transplanting, so that yeah. um, it's a trade-off. It's a little bit of a trade-off, but when you're when you're watering them, it's probably less of a trade-off than with dry land. Uh, dang, what was I just gonna say? So, do you have seeds started indoors now? Like, do you have watermelons started indoors now? And then at one point, you were saying something about putting some things in the fall. Well, that was with my crops. So I'm looking at barley, different barley um, 
lines of barley. We're doing purple and Hollis barleys and seeing if any of those can really survive the winters. I'm experimenting with safflower growing, planting that in the in the fall or even late fall, which we call frost seeding. You plant it late enough where it doesn't sprout, but it's lying there in the ground and, and ready to sprout as early as it wants to in the spring and gets off to a very early start. So those are the kinds of things we're experimenting with. Uh, those are field crops. I, with um, watermelons and my melons I'm doing dry land, I direct seeding all those for sure. And the only transplants I put out dry land last year were tomatoes and cabbages um, and uh, peppers. And um, I didn't, ex didn't, didn't experiment with direct seeding those because they take a little longer to get started. I might do that though and just see what happens with the dry land um, uh, cultivation this year. And you sure are an experimenter. I like I like that because a lot of times I feel like if I experiment and do something that's not successful, I'm like, oh, I wasted all that time and energy. And at our house, the biggest thing we struggle with is water. It seems like uh, even though we finally dug a well 560 feet deep, I don't know. We just we have water challenges. Anyway, Bob, so what's your favorite activity to do in the garden on on the flip side, I know you said you, there's nothing you don't really not like to do, but is there anything that you love more than anything else? Sure, the harvest. <laughs> For me, that's the, my favorite activity is the harvest. And uh, although I enjoy the trip all the way along and, and watching things grow and develop, but actually eating the fresh vegetables is uh, my uh, favorite thing, even if it's just a carrot right out of the ground and just a bunch on. That's my favorite activity. What's your favorite tool? If you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? Well, probably my hoe. <laughs> if I only had one tool, but um, uh, that's the one that is probably the most versatile to me. And what's your hoe like? Like, is, Mike likes a cultivator hoe. Oh, hmm. But I know it's, a lot of people recommend a scuffle hoe. Well, hmm. Well, if you only allowed me once, I would just take um, a regular old-fashioned hole not too not too um more thin than 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 uh, or more not so wide not such a wide hole but um or having a, a huge uh, height to it but a more uh a smaller hole i find is more versatile for me uh do you have a favorite recipe you like to eat from the garden hmm. i like to make um just uh, Hmm, favorite one. That's like asking me my favorite child. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, for beets, I love the roast beets at 425 degrees for about 50 minutes, and it, it um, forms kind of a um, caramelization on the outside, and they're just delicious. I love that. I love to make uh, hash browns with my potatoes. I love to do a stir fry with um, uh, leafy green vegetables and, and tomatoes and um, onions. And garlic and that sort of thing that I put on top of hash browns or or uh, what lots of different things or eat it or, or pasta or eat it or eat it just by itself. Um, those are probably some. I, I love baked squash in the uh, in the wintertime. My favorite squash are delicata and uh, carnival, and they are sweet as a sweet potato. And uh, we don't buy sweet potatoes for uh, for the great uh, winter squash we have that are just as good. And I use all the um, same recipes as call for sweet potatoes I use squash for. And I really love that. for So I eat, I enjoy things in different seasons too. I like that. I'm going to try to buy some or grow some more winter squash because I went to buy one yesterday. I'm going to a potluck and I like to make this 
It's called Chilean Squash Dish. And it was like $10 to buy just a squash in the store. And I was like, well, we're not having that. Wow. <laughs> I was just like, and that's not, it's not even an organic one. It was just at the regular grocery store. Yes. So how about a favorite internet resource? Anywhere you like to surf on the web? Ah, I am not very good about that. Um, if I have a question that's really uh, hard to find, ask you like a, a particular variety of something that I, I can't find, then I'll go looking on the internet. Um, but I don't do... So where do you go look for that? I just type in the name of whatever I'm looking for and oh, just it comes up. <laughs> well, Google so. works for a good internet resource. How about a favorite book or a magazine or like a blog or a website or anything? Well, my favorite magazine used to be um, um, The New Farmer that uh, Rodale put out. And when I was growing up, my favorite magazine was Organic Farm, was Organic, let's see, Organic Gardening yeah. and Farming that Rodale did. So I've always been a fan of Rodale and uh, the research they've done. And, and I'll try to work with them um, very close with exchanging ideas and, and doing uh, things together. Uh how about some business advice since you're the super businessman as far as I'm concerned for listeners on how to get started, maybe selling some extra produce or creating a green job or starting a farm or finding a farmer who wants them to come work on their land? Well, first of all, don't give up your day job. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I encourage people if they're going to try something new to start small. And uh, and learn it and learn it by doing it small and then build on their successes <clears throat> instead of borrowing a whole bunch of money and just jumping in with enormous debt and investments and something you don't have any idea of the potential for success. Uh, and I would go talk to people that are doing what you want to do and have had some success. Um, I found that organic folks are mostly really quite um, free with their information if you are – um, looking at some kind of a manufacturing where you're would be viewed as a as a competitor, then don't be surprised if they're not so free to to put you in competition with them. But in that case, just go a little further away in the next state or across the country, and and um, maybe find some that that uh, you can get some information from that don't see you as a potential competitor, perhaps. So that's um that's a couple ideas. Um, have fun, do stuff that's the. I think it's important that we we follow our passions that um, bring us satisfaction and joy from what we do. I feel really bad for people who work eight to five, five days a week just for the weekend and they hate their job. And, and the only reason they are doing it is so they can have a, a paycheck for the weekend to go do what they really want. That's too bad if they have to wait that long for enjoyment and fulfill, fulfillment in their, in their careers and their life's work. So I, I really encourage people to, um, focus on something that satisfies you and um, feels like you're making a contribution. Those are great ideas. I think listeners are really going to be inspired by that. All right. Well, here's my final question, unless there's anything else you wanted to, that you feel like we forgot. It's kind of a doozy. If there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Well, for me, the um, conversion to organic agriculture is 
uh, has so many ramifications. As I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the survival of a family farm, the survival of small rural American communities, the um, uh, turning back of the of the pollution of our earth, the remediation of climate change, and, and finally, and probably most importantly, um, a remediation of our of, of our chronic diseases that are just um, continue to grow out of control. All that can be mediated or improved or helped by a conversion from the chemical industrial system of agriculture to a uh, sustainable, regenerative, organic system. And so if I had one thing to pinpoint, that would be it. Um, it's a, of course, it's a, big, it's a big area, but as I mentioned earlier, everyone can have an influence on that by what they, what they eat and what they buy, and uh, that shows how they vote. So vote with your dollars at the grocery store, and you'll be making a difference. Well, I love all that. So wasn't there something, like I have a little note here on Peach Stew about grass-fed beef in Argentina? Oh, it yeah. says food waste reduction, the big star, sorry. <laughs> well, food waste. No, we haven't talked about food waste. And, and, and going back to your, uh, your concern, and this is a big concern of a lot of people, that um, organic, costs, organic food costs too much. And, of course, my, my point is that, that chemical food actually costs enormously amount more. You just don't pay for it at the checkout counter, that's all. Um, but for those people on limited budgets, and actually all of us, um, if, if we would watch how we care for foods, you know, we, we waste about half of the food grown in America. So I wonder if you spent $100 a week for groceries, and if it cost you $200 a week to buy organic instead of um, non-organic. But wonder if you took those groceries instead of wasting half of it, used it all. So that $200 now, those groceries would last you two weeks. Now you're back to the same price that you started with, with the, with the non-organic groceries, just because you didn't waste anything. Nothing sat in the refrigerator until it was moldy and thrown out. Um, you used everything that you peeled off to, to make broth or, or um, other, uh, other uh, ways of utilizing your food. So there was, the waste was almost nothing. So that's one great potential that we don't often think about. The other criticism we get of organic agriculture is that you know the world's, the world's going to starve if we turn to organic, and that's a, that's a lie perpetrated by um, a chemical agriculture industrial complex and those giant multinationals who want to keep control of where they what where they are controlling and, and seeds and chemicals used to grow those seeds. And what I uh, my experience is that on my farm our yields are about the same as the county averages. And uh, experiments done by Rodale for the last 30 years uh, in Pennsylvania, the Rodale Institute, have demonstrated the same thing, that the organic um, system does not uh, mean a reduction in yields compared to our industrial um, chemical system. On our farm, our yields are never as high in, in wet years, they're never as high as our, as our neighbors, but in very dry years, they're much higher than our neighbors because our neighbors have... Uh, crops have jotted out and gone to zero, and we're still at eight or ten bushel an acre. It's not, it's not great. It's not very uh, much, but it is significantly bigger than zero. And when you when you do the averages, the averages are about the same. When you look at the third world, you know the other cry is, "Oh, we need biotech and we need all this chemical stuff to feed the world." The truth is that the industrial world is only feeding about one third of the world. 
the two-thirds that remain are being fed currently by local small farmers in their locale, wherever they live in, in Asia and in Africa, now I'm, I'm referring to. And if studies coming out of Africa and published studies from um, India indicate that if those small um, local farms uh, converted to organic principles, particularly in, in growing or, or doing some soil building activities and rotations to reduce um, um, the cycles or break up the cycles of disease and pests and weeds the way we've seen happen on our farm and part of organic systems, that they would double or triple their output of food that they can grow. And if you doubled the output of food on two-thirds of the world's uh, food production systems, you would end world hunger. So in my mind, from the research I've seen, organic agriculture has much more potential to ending world hunger than our most uh, elaborate chemical systems, which most of the third world can't pay for anyway. So that's, that's kind of my closing statement on that. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end because uh, I just, I think all of that is so true. And uh, I started, we started getting like Rodales back in like 2000 when they had like an article about that very thing, how organic could feed the world and just uh, is a better option for it. Uh, well, thanks so much for sharing with us today, Bob. We really appreciate you taking your time out of this Saturday morning and uh, I don't know, have a great spring. Hey, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And come see us sometime. We'll uh, we'll uh, pick our own lunch right out of the garden together. All right. I am dying to come over to Big Sandy and check out your farm and meet you. And that would be awesome. <laughs> you should be welcome. The version is uh, available for download at Amazon, too. Okay. And I'm going to make sure I tell listeners to leave a review because that will help other people read it and it's such a great read i know they're going to love it as much as i did thank you if you could do that or encourage your folks to do that that would be a big help yeah well thanks so much for sharing with us bob you have a great saturday i know you're probably antsy to go enjoy <laughs> well, your day off thank you well actually i'm between trips so we just started a book tour last week she's actually teaching full-time but i was taking, wondering about that she takes this semester off she's taking this semester oh. off so. And then she wrote it while she was teaching full-time, right? Yeah. Besides. It's part of what um, her yeah. <clears throat> her appointment is, this kind of thing. Oh. So, uh, I would love to see you on, like, Democracy Now! or Tom Hartman on TV. Because I just feel like this book could really... It, because it combines, like, the science and... But but it's got that heart, that storytelling heart to it. And it just, like, it, you know, it gives this really compelling why we need to, because I, like, it amazes me. That's like a lot of it. I feel like I knew, but it, it's a way to get that information out there. And so other people will hear it. And I just love your dream of us being a hundred percent organic. Like, cause we used to be years ago before there were chemicals. We can do it. I truly yeah. believe we can do it. And I love the way that you're challenging it. And that's why I want to write my book, Rockstar Millennials, because those yeah. are the kids that are doing it. I've interviewed so many farmers and and millennials and that generation that is out there trying to implement these yeah there's more and more all the time and that's what's making the difference so i don't know if i mentioned my new jingle to you is uh chemical free by 53 and um that's my new war cry for uh if i every chance i get to say it that's what i do because that's the that's like that gives you the 100 year target then
Chemical free by 53. Well, if my husband's still alive, he will turn 100 that year. That's what Oh, I'm really? To. Yeah. Well, I'll be about 106. So, um, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to keep my um But the two of you could be because you both eat super healthy food. Stay away from a lot of those chemical things. So, uh yeah, it's anyway. interesting. I have like this huge assortment of friends that were all born in 1953. I don't know why. I'm just kind oh. of attracted because I'm I was born in 67. My husband's quite a bit older than I. Am. Uh -huh. I don't know why, but like yeah, one of my best friends and one of my best teaching friends and just yeah, it's really interesting. People born then, my connection to them. Anyway, you have a great day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. Okay, bye bye now. Get your copy of the Organic Oasis Guidebook available today from Amazon for just $26.95. And it's got 12 lessons designed to help you create your own organic oasis. Um, it starts with healthy soil. It talks about building an earth-friendly landscape. It helps you understand the difference between annuals and perennials and how to bring in beneficial insects. It talks about fruit trees and just... Um, all the lessons that I've learned on my podcast mixed with what Mike and I have done here. Okay. What Mike has done here at Mike's Green Garden and just, um, I hope that it will help you on your garden journey, uh, to create, like I said, your own organic oasis, um, where you can have healthy food and enjoy, um, you know, a very special place. And most of all, it's good for mother earth. So Deer Busters is located in Waynes Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, but we work with many different homeowners, gardeners, pet owners to protect their landscapes from deer damage. And we offer do-it-yourself deer fencing in plastic and metal fence options. So we have a, a whole lot of different fence options for every unique gardener. Deerbusters is uh, an online company. We're on deerbusters.com. And uh, if you're local to Maryland or Pennsylvania, you can come by and check us out. But we do not have physical locations across the country. So deerbusters.com is the way to go. We also have an active social media platform, Facebook and Twitter. And we are ready to help answer any questions and help our growers protect their landscapes from wildlife damage. We're here to help uh, growers all across the country with our fencing. Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.